Welcome to the Upper 90 Football Podcast, providing American coverage and opinions on all things football. I'm Justin Ruderman. And I'm Garrett Post. And today we have a relatively short episode coming at you uh, with some, some international and some club football, as well as some transfer news. Uh, we would have done listener questions, but unfortunately, Garrett has come down with COVID. So he, we want this episode to be a little bit shorter, but Garrett is fighting through it for us to record this episode. Thank you for that, Garrett. Anything for the podcast. Got to be done. We'd love to hear it. So we can start off, Garrett, with the U.S. women's national team. We don't cover a ton of women's football on this podcast, not as much as we should, in my opinion. But we have to cover this because it was the final between the U.S. and Canada in the CONCACAF Women's Championship. And it was just a fantastic game. These teams keep meeting up uh, in finals, right? This is now the 10th meeting that has been between Canada and the U.S. men's national team and the U.S. women's national team, excuse me, in a World Cup or Olympic qualifier. Uh, and the U.S. has won all nine previous matches of those. This one was pretty close. I mean, it was a good game. Canada started off better. Uh, especially in those first 20 minutes, we're, we're definitely the better side with more attacking intent, more chances created. Um, but it was in the second half that the U.S. started to take over a little bit more and eventually got the penalty, right, uh, through Rose Lavelle being pulled down in the box or tripped from behind, really. Alex Morgan then dispatched the penalty, uh, making it 1-0 to the United States, which ended up being the final score uh, Alex Morgan, she's just incredible, right? Woman of the match. She won golden ball of the tournament. Uh, she also has scored in three of four of those games that we were talking about, the World Cup and Olympic qualifiers that she has played in against Canada. Um, they've all been in finals, which is just ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, it's to me, it's close in that they were – it's only a 1-0 scoreline, especially by a penalty, but the U.S. deserved that. And not only that, but the U.S. just doesn't concede. They haven't conceded a goal in, again, World Cup or Olympic qualifiers. We say this because those are the big games, right? As Alex Morgan said post-game, those are the ones that are real. The She Believes Cup matters to an extent, but it doesn't feel real like these do. Um, but the point being, they have not conceded in one of these major games in over 50 hours of play. 50 hours. That goes back to 2010, Garrett. That's just insane. Yeah, I, I I don't even know what to say about that. Um, and that, you know, goes to prove your point that even though this was a close game, the, the U.S. deserved not only to win this game overall, but also to win this tournament. Um, and that's unequivocal. And the fact man, that, yeah, that's hard for me to wrap my mind around 50 hours of play in these qualifiers. That's crazy. And it's not like, you know, like this is the most important of games, which which just shows that this U.S. Women's National Team always delivers under pressure, and they always show up when they need to show up, uh, and that's part of what makes this era of dominance so impressive. And yeah, Alex Morgan, old, reliable, thirty-three years old, still coming up with moments, um, and you know, scoring in the clutch. Yeah, I mean, what else can we say about this team? And they don't look like slowing down even after you know winning two World Cups consecutively and just the amount of dominance they've had for you know a decade and beyond yeah you're absolutely right Alex Morgan needs to be start needs to be starting to put in those conversations with Carly Lloyd and Abby Wambach as just the top players to ever play for this women's national team in my opinion she is 
right up there uh, with them. And as you say, to do it against a team in Canada who are in their golden generation, basically, as they are in their men and their women, but yeah. the U.S. are still dominating. And then, Garrett, we don't have the European League's officially back yet in real season but we do have preseason which we're not going to go into these games because they don't necessarily matter especially the results but what does matter occasionally is you know you look at the way that teams play or the way that they're doing under a new manager or a new player or just different different things that you might notice that are different from last season uh so my question to you is simply has anybody impressed you in this preseason or do you have any takeaways from the overall preseason that you've seen so far of European football? Yeah. I, I, you know, there have been people who have impressed me and yeah, they, they don't matter in terms of the result, but the performances do matter. And I think, uh, it, you know, it can show you a bit of a glimpse of what might happen this season. And I think Arsenal have been terribly impressive this preseason. Gabriel Jesus has, started with a bang uh, after his move from Manchester city scoring, you know, I think it was a brace off the bench in his debut and then scored against Everton and, and now scored against Chelsea. And, you know, he's really been in the goals and we were discussing whether he would work as a nine in Arteta's system. And, and thus far he looks like a perfect fit. Um, and, you know, obviously Odegaard has been playing great as well. And I think the link up between those two and that young, vibrant front line they have, I think Arsenal are definitely going to be within a shout of, of getting that top four spot this year after some really solid summer recruitment, Jesus included. Yeah, it's a good point you bring up. They battered Chelsea 4-0, didn't they? We said the results don't matter, but 4-0 means something. Uh, the crazy part to me was Lakonga is scoring the fourth in stoppage time and taking his shirt off in a preseason. <laughs> what are you doing, mate? That's world-class shithousery, in my opinion. It's a London derby, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. But you're right. I mean, and it's not just Jesus, because the other forwards are, are forwards on the move in the Premier League have looked really good. Holland got his first goal his debut goal for city within 12 minutes which they stopped the game right afterwards by the way for lightning but yeah he i mean got off the mark extremely quickly darwin nunez who you know may not have had the best debut scored four goals for liverpool in a game so they're performing in preseason hopefully we can we can see that type of goal scoring in the premier league this season that'd be really really exciting and make it you know even better league than it already is um but for me the team that impressed me, you say Arsenal, for me, it was Manchester United. And as a City yeah. fan, I hate saying it, but 10 hog ball, man, it looked incredible, didn't it? He was, Their ball was flowing, the movement from back to front, the way that there was interchange between the front three, the, the cutting back and the, just all the movement was beautiful. It's something I haven't seen from United in years. And honestly, it's worrying as a City fan to see United have a real manager who can start to implement real tactics and real plans that result in beautiful real goals i mean there, there's one that rashford uh, martial and sancho all linked up on in which they were just passing it back almost it seemed like keep away in the box just for fun and then tapped it into the goal uh it was yeah so i just really really impressive and then of course as a city fan i had to throw in, in an impressive city player joshua wilson esbrand uh, the the academy left back, 18 years old. He is just super super impressive in a position that Elias uh, that LFC, Manchester City have a uh, <laughs> a weakness in. I get confused with my team, two teams apparently. Uh, but Manchester City have a weakness in that position right now. They're still going after Cucurella, obviously. But 
if they can get Joshua Wilson Esperan to come to a level where he can play uh, consistent minutes in a Premier League and in all competitions for Manchester City, that could be crucial. And he was very, very impressive in preseason. Yeah, just circling back to United real quick, they battered Liverpool 4-0, right? And, and Liverpool started with a pretty weak team in the first half, conceded three times, but then Klopp brought all of his best players off the bench for the second half. Fabinho, Van Dijk, Canate, Thiago, Salah, Robertson, Nunez, and they still lost the second half 1-0 thanks to a goal from Facunda Palestri. So, uh, yeah, I agree. I think what Ten Hag's been doing thus far is very impressive. And, you know, it's something that we always like to say identity is so crucial in turning a team uh, from just being one with good players into a team that is more than the sum of its parts. Um, and that's what Ten Hag is doing at the moment, it seems. So I, I just wanted to uh, reaffirm that I, I totally agree with that. that. I think, you know, the top six race is going to be just fascinating this year in terms of who's getting top four, who's getting top six. We have so many teams who have high ceilings. So yeah, it's going to be a really interesting season. Absolutely. Great point. And in that top six race, I mean, Chelsea had a very underwhelming preseason to say the least. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how, how that uh, unfolds. Obviously they're adding Koulibaly who got barely any minutes in preseason and then potentially more. Um, but on the topic of the Premier League in general, we can move to our debate of the week, which is we're adding a new segment called the debate of the week because Partly just because we were debating this, right? And we yeah. thought it, it's perfect for the podcast. We were debating how do we rank the top five European leagues, right? Everyone talks about, oh, they're, the top five European leagues are the best leagues in the world, and they're, they're different than the rest, right? They're the best. And I don't think there's much debate about that. But within those top five, Garrett, who's the best, and, and how would you rank them in order? Yeah, well, for me, I mean, it's got to be Premier League number one. I, I I don't really think that's a debate at the moment. Um, and then La Liga number two. I feel like that's just so solidified within the football world at the moment that it's Premier League one, La Liga two, and I don't really think that's debatable. What's more debatable is the gap between them. Uh, personally, I think the gap between La Liga and the other three is larger than the gap between the Prem and La Liga, if that makes sense. I still think there is definitely a gap between the Prem and La Liga. But for me, it's, you know, Prem one, La Liga two, and then the other three, it almost seems like they shift back and forth depending on the season, right? If I were, if you were asking me for an answer right now, I'd probably go Bundesliga three and I'll be controversial here. I'm going to go Liga four and I'm going to put Serie A dead last. Wow. Wow. See, that is interesting to me uh, especially on the Serie A point because I agree with you obviously the Premier League is the best league in the world uh, and you're getting at the point that we were discussing which is I think that the gap between the Premier League and La Liga is much bigger than the gap between La Liga and the other three um, I just think the Premier League is so far clear in a way the best league in the world by a large large margin at this point uh, and for me La Liga is definitely second, but I think that Serie A is creeping up on them right now with the signings that they're making and, and the players that they're keeping within the league. They keep the Dybala within the league. They bring in Pogba. They bring Lukaku back. They're, they're still um, an incredibly quality league in terms of those top players, as well as they are a very, they're the most open league in terms of who's going to win the title, right? And I think that is a definitive. So I think that's part of it. Um, but for me, the easiest way to look at 
how we should rank these is the market value of players. And obviously we don't know exactly what that is, but the best we can do is look at transfer market in which the Premier League has over $10 billion market value uh, combined for all of their players. Whereas La Liga is about half that as well as Serie A in the 5 billion range. Whereas Bundesliga is then 4 billion league under 4 billion or almost five for, for Bundesliga 4.6. So for me, the, the debates are between the La Liga, the Serie A and Bundesliga, because I think Premier League is number one. I think League on is for sure last um, because it's just PSG and everybody else. Uh, so yes, PSG, it can compete at a top level. But if you look at the mid table to bottom table teams in League on they're poor, very poor. To me, the, the debate between Serie A and Bundesliga in that third spot is as far as development, because I think Bundesliga develops better and sends player to sends players to other leagues more often and at a better rate than Serie A. But I think the actual players in Serie A are better. I mean, I, I get that, but as much as I agree with, you know, Serie A, you'd say is a more entertaining league than, than the Bundesliga and, and Liga at the, at this point, because it's open and we, we genuinely don't know who is going to win it this year. The fact of the matter is that when they go up against European opposition, they're just not doing well. Like the team that won the title in Italy this year didn't get out of the Champions League group stage. Like, come on, man. It's just, yes, in comparison throughout the league, it's even there's a lot of good teams when you're looking at the rest of the league. But when you're looking at the rest of Europe, I don't know if I agree with that because they just haven't had any success in European competitions uh, or at least in meaningful competitions, <clears throat> conference league, uh, in, in over <laughs> 10 years. So that's why I just think, you know, as much as kind of the top heavy leagues getting dominated by one team is boring and it doesn't make it, you know, the best to watch. And if we're doing this by entertainment value, then no, Serie A is definitely not last. But in terms of how they stack up um, against other leagues, yeah, I, I just, I have to put Serie A at least as one of those bottom twos. You know, Liga being above it is definitely contentious. It's just... I don't know any league that has Mbappe, Messi and Neymar in it. It's, it's just hard to overlook that for me. Just the star pull of that, if you will. Absolutely. And finally, I love that debate. I think it's just a great debate. Uh, I don't disagree with what you're saying, right? I think that it's what you're saying is completely logical as well as what I'm saying. It makes sense because I just think that there's so many different ways to assess uh, which yeah. is the better league that depending on what your criteria is, you might have a different opinion. But with that, Justin, we can move over to some games in the MLS this week, starting with Toronto. And we talked about, you know, their transfers and the big business they've been going on, or I guess small business, if you're talking about Pasuelo's transfer fee, but <laughs> they hosted Charlotte uh, in Toronto. And wow, what an incredible performance for their debutantes, both Insigne and Bernardeschi making their debuts. And whew, did they deliver? They absolutely did. I mean, just just the records that they set. I mean, Bernadeschi got a goal and an assist. He was the first player to do that since Freddie Montero for Seattle in 2009. They scored four goals as a team. Uh, two of those were Michael Bradley's, by the way, which Bernadeschi was obviously involved in and as well as Insigne. Uh, but they scored four goals in the first half. That's the first time they've ever done that in club history, which is saying something considering the, the poor season that they've had. I mean, Insigne and Bernadeschi really just changed the 
identity of this team. You could see it from minute one. The, the fluidity of passing was at an, a higher caliber. The intention to attack was elevated. I, it's a much better team from Toronto. I didn't expect to see that immediately. I think Mark Anthony K, as much as I hate to say it, actually had some contributions to that as well. His progressive movement in the midfield was important. Um, but I mean, as well as they were defensive. I mean, that's the other piece to this game that was wild to me is because you, you expect, okay, they bring in Mark Anthony K, they bring in Bernadeschke, they bring in Insigne. These are all attacking ideas, attacking players, especially Insigne and Bernadeschi. And of course, they're going to help score goals. So the four goals in the first half for the first time in club history isn't necessarily shocking. What is shocking is the defensive work. First Toronto FC clean sheet in 302 days in 29 straight games. They haven't kept a clean sheet, which is the third longest streak in MLS history. But they did it with their star attackers on the pitch. What does that say, Garrett? Yeah, um, it, it's impressive, and I, I really didn't expect it just because, you know, usually it, it will take the signings a little bit of time to to make this impact. But I also look at Charlotte here, and I'm like, come on, guys, really? Like, they, they almost just <laughs> rolled over and died and, and let Toronto do this. Um, mm-hmm. And I just from a Charlotte perspective, it's so hard for me to get a read on this team because – you know, one week they are, are beating Nashville 4-1, which is incredibly impressive. But And then they turn around, they get slapped by a Toronto team who are towards the bottom of the table. Um, th- they lose to Montreal. Like I, I, I just don't really know what to do with this team. I can't tell if they're a train wreck or, you know, could pull an RSL and go deep in the playoffs. Uh, who knows? I mean, they lost to Miami last week. And, and now, uh, yeah, <sighs> I don't know, but either way, it doesn't take away from how impressive what Toronto did was, but you know, obviously it's going to be about whether they can sustain that. Um, And and if they get another big win like this, this week, you know, I think heads are definitely going to start turning uh, towards their direction in this league. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And they can totally make a run at those playoffs, even though they're at near the bottom of the table. Uh, They're only six points off of a playoff spot. So it's just, tight in that east um yeah but it's and quickly they all they also they also play the white caps tomorrow in the canadian championship match hmm. so that that could be another big you know opportunity for the new signings to to have an impact and potentially lift silverware in only their second game not only that obviously it's a way to get into that ccl which they really really want with that right. stacked team right and they need to be there next season if they aren't able to do it through winning a trophy like uh, the supporter shield or MLS cup, which seems less likely, obviously <laughs> less likely, a lot less likely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Montreal want, want to get into that CCL too. That'd be pretty cool for them. But uh, another interesting game, as you say, was in the West between two of the top teams in FC Dallas and RSL. And this was just the absolute definition of a shite house by FC Dallas. I mean, how do you have 70% possession, 25 shots, and score zero goals? I I mean, it's just MLS, honestly, is is the way that I think about it. Um, 
stuff like this happens. We've seen, I mean, I don't know if you remember, I think it was, was it Portland last year who pulled off one of the craziest shite houses I've ever seen? No, it was RSL against Portland, right? In the yeah. playoffs. Yeah. And and so now, you know, what, <laughs> I guess they're getting a taste of their own medicine at this point from Dallas. Um, yeah, just not clinical enough from RSL. And, you know, I don't think they're going to be in trouble. I, I still think they're a very good team. And I know you've been saying for a long time that they're going to drop out. But, you know, we're 22 games in and and they're still fourth in, in the West. So, yeah, it's an unfortunate result for them, especially after Dallas looked like, oh, they were skidding a bit after losing to New York. Um, and, and they, you know, blew that win against Houston. And they've just been drawing a whole bunch recently. But, yeah, they managed to to find a way. And, you know, guess who it was who scored the goal? Jesus Ferreira, of course, the the man on the spot, as always, continuing his great form, still on top of the golden boot chart, I believe, if if I'm not wrong. So, yeah, you're right on that. And I do say RSL, I just have this feeling they're going to drop out. And yes, they are still in fourth place. But just as we were talking about Charlotte in the East, they're only three points out of falling out of those playoff spots. So that is kind of crazy to be. God, this this league is so tight. It's insane how tight this league is. Every single week, the the standings shift major. And, and, it, and it will always come down to the final day. Always. Always. And even at the top, usually it will. It's just yep. such an entertaining league. It really is. Right. Last year with Colorado, they literally, you know, ended up winning the West on the final day. You're absolutely right, Garrett. And with that, there were a couple MLS records that were set uh, this week. The first being Philadelphia Union tied an MLS record for only conceding 15, think about this, 15 goals in their first 22 games. That is just ridiculous. There's there's only been uh, two games where they conceded more than, or, or where they conceded two goals, I think. LAFC, at, at LAFC, and I believe the other was Toronto. Yeah, I mean, that's that's insane. 0.68 goals per game allowed. I mean, that's a, that's a recipe for success, right? And that's why they find themselves at the top of the Eastern Conference, right? Because... You know, if you're only can see that's insane. Yeah, their goal difference is is 19, which is actually worse than New York because New York have have scored a lot and have also only conceded 21. But, you know, you know, the phrase Justin defense wins championships. So if Philadelphia keep it up, who knows what's going to happen? Um, but yeah, just terribly impressive from them, isn't it? My preseason supporter shield pick. They they don't score a ton of goals necessarily, but they find a way to win one nil two nil. That's how they do it. The other MLS record, Portland Timbers. You're not going to like this one, Garrett. It was the most home matches unbeaten against one team in MLS history. And who is it against? Your San Jose Earthquakes. They have not lost to the Earthquakes in 16 games at home. That includes 12 wins and four draws. Garrett, give us the Quakes perspective. Yeah, I mean, I didn't actually know this um, I- I- until I, I you mentioned you brought it up uh, earlier in this week before we recorded, but it's not surprising to me whatsoever because as long as I can remember watching the earthquakes, I've always just counted going to Providence Park as an auto loss because we just never do anything there, right? Like last year, we won in Seattle. Okay, managed to get that done. We we beat the Galaxy and Carson actually, you know, quite frequently, all things considered. But yeah, we we never win in Portland. Uh, so as much as this is a depressing stat, 
it's not really hitting me hard because it's not surprising at all. Like, like I could have predicted that. Oh yeah. If, if there was one team that, you know, we always lose to, it's gotta be Portland in Portland. Yeah. Well, it's clear that, you know, it It just didn't know the stat, I guess, but the, the Quakes fans know that they don't, they don't get any results there. Can't no, go get a point. No. Wow. And with that, Garrett, we can move to our game of the week, which uh, of course, was an MLS game. It was between second place Austin in the in the West and fourth place Austin or fourth place Red Bulls in the East at the time. I believe they were in fourth. Uh, it was at the Q two in Austin, a, a really really big game and one in which you know we thought would be really exciting um, because Austin have this you know possessive kind of strategy where they break you down and they are really exciting in the way that they like to move the ball around through their, their front three while New York are fine with that. And are going to counter attack, but they're also a very good team. They're, they're defensively solid and they'll hit you quickly on that counter. Um, plus the other piece to that was Austin came into the game six Oh and one against the East, right? They hadn't lost this season against the East in seven games. So it just favors Austin in this game, but then you see the New York Red Bull starting lineup and they're starting a bunch of kids. They've benched Lakinas, they've benched out Morgan, they've benched Amaya. So I thought we weren't going to get a very good game, but that wasn't the case, was it? No, it definitely wasn't. Yeah, you texted me saying, "Oh, Austin's going to destroy these fools," and and that was not the case at all. And it was really a story of opportunism from the Red Bulls. Uh, you know, Austin dominated the ball in this game, 79% possession. And we, we could have predicted that, but you know, uh, New York actually had more shots on target and, and just one fewer shot, uh, which is kind of crazy, but it was really just Austin making bad unforced errors in, in their own half. Um, and in the first half, they, they finally got punished. There were two where the Red Bulls put it in the back of the net and, you know, it was just offside and the assistant referee correctly flagged it and, and the goals were ruled out. But then Surgeon Goma took a shot right at Andrew Tarbell uh, and he basically just parried it in between his own legs and, and in. And I tweeted that at that time, you can take Andrew Tarbell out of the earthquakes, but you can't take the earthquakes out of Andrew Tarbell. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of got a chuckle out of seeing him make a, a classic Andrew Tarbell mistake. Um, and they were punished yet again, this time not through a keeper error, actually a fantastic finish from Drew Yearwood, but uh, he picked the ball off from just a sloppy pass out from the center backs and curled one into the side netting. Nothing Tarball could, could do about it. And New York have a shock to nil lead. And we're just like, what is going on here? Um, but of course, of course, Sebastian Driussi had to have a say in this game as he does pretty much every game that he plays. And he scored a, a fantastic volley off basically a rebound from a corner, went through bodies. Carlos Cornell just, you know, couldn't see it. He was unsighted until it was too late. Um, and so it goes in 2-1 at, at halftime and, you know, looked to be a really entertaining game. And then in the second half, the Red Bulls, who you thought, OK, maybe they won't be able to withstand this comeback from Austin. They score again through Cameron Harper, through yet another mistake from Austin. And then again, in the 65th minute, through Tom Barlow from another defensive mistake. It was just Austin shooting themselves in the foot. And then Driussi scored what is undoubtedly the goal of the week. Like, we usually debate that, Justin, right? But but there just is no debate this week. 
Driussi with a knuckleball into the side netting from 30 yards. Incredible goal. And then, you know, they had the debut from uh, their their new signing, Washington Carrozzo, who had a bicycle kick assist for Ethan Finley in the, in the 81st minute. That made it 4-3. And we were like, okay, maybe Austin will pull this off, but it ended up not being enough. The Red Bulls take the win. Austin lose against the Eastern Conference for the first time. And and this, you know, yet again, justified our selection as game of the week. I think we've been hitting hitting these quite often recently, haven't we? Been spot on, mate. Even when I thought that it was not going to be 4-3. Let's go. Thank you, New York Red Bulls, for proving <laughs> me wrong with that terrible lineup. But just my last two points I have to make are, I, I said that Austin are going to like to possess it, and we knew that happened in the game, but I just saw the numbers. 80%? Jesus Christ. That is, wow. I mean, that that is just a number you do not see, 80% possession. That is really, really high. And the other thing is, you're right, uh, Drew C goal of the week, but not only goal of the week, he, he just has to be the leader in the MVP race right now. Right? Totally, he just has totally. to be. He's Which, so... Is it MLS dot... Does MLS.com say 80 or where are you getting 80? Uh, I was just, I see 79. Yeah. Yes. That's what I meant. 79, 80. That's yeah. I'm, yeah. 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 I was yeah. rounding. I was well, rounding. I, I for mean, that it's, also, 1%. it's also, yeah. You think about, well, you think about the second half as well, right? The, the Red Bulls by the 65th minute had a four, one lead. So why would they need the ball? They were just sitting back yeah. and they almost, you know, they almost bottled it anyway, just because of the quality that Austin have, but you know, they did enough to get the win um, and, and they actually ex- executed their game plan. As I said, opportunism and, and capitalizing on those awesome mistakes that they forced. And with that, Garrett, we can finally move to the transfers. I th- This is always my favorite part of the episodes because I like to hear what you think about all of these wild transfers going on. So, Justin, let's start with Shaq Moore then, obviously a USMNT player, moving from Tenerife in Spain back to MLS. Similar theme to Giochini, who we talked about last week, right? Um, these players realizing that, okay, if I want to get into this World Cup roster, uh, I need to appease Greg Berhalter and play in MLS. So he's going to Nashville for $2 million, um, and then Nashville having to pay 50 k in discovery rights to Montreal, which is you know possibly the dumbest rule in the history of MLS. Um, but he's signing a contract through 2025. They they have an option to make it 2026. Um, He has 10 caps for the USMNT, really quality right back. So I I think it's a great signing for Nashville. Yeah, I fully agree with that, Garrett. And it's funny you bring up Gio Akini because the comparison between those is exactly why I think this is perfect, right? Shaq Moore is a right back. He is, as you say, up in contention with the U.S. men's national team. I don't see any reason that he's not better than DeAndre Yedlin. Yedlin may be an MLS all-star this year, but I don't think he deserves it. He no. he has been just a, a stalwart in the team because there's been nobody else to take that spot from him. But as we talked about with Gio Acchini, uh Berhalter likes MLS players. He has this MLS bias, which is why I think that he can get a better eye from from Berhalter in Nashville than he would have at Tenerife, even if he, again, shouldn't. It shouldn't be the case. It is the case. Um, I also think yeah, $2 million is a pretty good price for him. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a good move for him uh, in his career and obviously very, very good for Nashville. They already have one of the best back lines in the league, and now you're adding Shaq Moore to that? I mean, 
it's undoubtedly the best back line in MLS. Nashville, I don't know how you think you're going to compete with, with that back line because to have Lovitz and uh, Zimmerman and more, just it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's a good good sign for MLS that some of these young, high-quality American players are, are coming back to MLS and realizing, you know, this is a good league. And, you know, maybe if things don't always work out in Europe, the fact that we can retain some of these players and that we have the amount of, you know, US MNT players playing in MLS that we do when like you compare it to like the 2014 World Cup, where there was pretty much no one on the roster, you know, maybe Chris Wondolowski aside, who was playing in MLS, right? It was a bunch of players in in, in the Bundesliga, a lot of whom were dual Nats not actually produced by the US program. So I, I kind of like seeing these players coming back to MLS and, and I'm sure they will thrive. And I think Shaq Moore is uh no exception to that. And I think it's a great signing. Also just on DeAndre Edlin, he's the U he's the U.S.'s third best right back at best at best. Okay. Now we have to talk about this. Okay. List them. Desk number one. And then okay. Shaq Moore number two. Okay. 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 And then Yellen three. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you were talking about Yedlin being this, and it's like, oh, you forget forget that Serginio Des exists because Yedlin shouldn't be touching the the starting eleven. No, but he is. He's going. I'm talking about the squad. He's going to the World Cup right now. Yedlin is going I to sure, the World yeah, Cup. Yeah, I mean, I sure hope not, though. Well, sure that's what I'm not. saying. This this gives more the opportunity. We already know Dest is going for sure as the starter, but as the backup, right, right. Yedlin, Yedlin's there right now, and I think that he is for sure there in Berhalter's mind, and this might give more the opportunity to change that mind. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely want Shaq Moore on that plane over Yedlin. Um, you know, 25 versus Yedlin, who is 29, and you know, it's, it's kind of already been at the peak of his career. You'd say was probably at Newcastle when he, that was the highest level he played at. Or, I mean, you could even say he was at his best in, in Seattle, if we're being honest. But, you know, it's just players in in, in opposite trajectories. Um, and, yeah, I, I just don't think Yedlin is good enough to justify hampering the development of some of the other players that, who could be on that plane. I think the only reason he goes is because he's one of those couple players who's played in a World Cup before. Uh, and so I think that's, that's fair. That's the reason he goes unfortunately, but hopefully Shaq Moore can, can find a way onto that roster as well. And then Justin, we can move over to Europe and, you know, some, some big center backs on the move at the moment, starting with Jules Koundé. And this is so funny because it's another bidding war between Chelsea and Barcelona, just like the Rafinha situation, but it looks like it might be having the same outcome. You hit the nail on the head, Garrett. It is exactly like the Rafinha situation. It is the exact same situation. Chelsea have put in a bid for 55 million pounds. It's the best bid. It's Sevilla would be totally ready to accept that bid, except Jules Koundé will not agree personal terms with the Chelsea because the player himself wants to go to Barcelona, just as Rafinha did. He has personal terms agreed with Barcelona, just as Rafinha did. But Barcelona won't pay the same transfer fee that Chelsea are willing to just like Rafinha and they're they're willing to put in a bid for less than what Chelsea did just like Rafinha they're going to put in a bid for uh, something but it won't get near 50 plus 10 million euros so it's still going to be less than Chelsea however all that being said 
I agree with you. We're probably going to see the same result. And eventually Jules Koundé will find his way to Barcelona just the way that Rafinha did. And they will continue to splash cash that they do not have. Yep. And we talked about it last week uh, about how they're just bargaining their future for the current and spending all this money. And, and I think all these signings are fantastic. If we're being honest, like these are some uh, just high quality players that they're bringing in. And I think they will be a good team this year, but is it worth it overall with what they're, what they're playing with here uh, and, you know, what they're giving away in order to bring these players in? I, I'm not sure. We'll see. But from a Chelsea perspective, just, I mean, this is, this is insane stuff to me. I mean, this is a team that won the champions like two seasons ago and, and they're getting uh, like players are, are no leaving. Pull. Yes. I know it's, I know it's Barcelona, but, but this is a Barcelona team that didn't get out of the group stages of the champions league. Right. Like this is a Barcelona team who, you know, are at their lowest as a club that they've been in, in decades and decades. Meanwhile, Chelsea just won the Champions League and they cannot get any of these players through their front door. It's it's almost comical. It is comical. Barcelona have more pull in the mud than Chelsea have at the top <laughs> of the mountain. I mean, it's not like Chelsea are at the top of the mountain right now, right? Like they did I not don't... have a great season in the prem and and, and you know, knocked out in the they quarterfinals. Will, as you say, they won the UCL not, not like two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're, I mean, yeah, but they're not. In the, they're they're not in the mud. I'm not saying they're in the mud. I wouldn't say it's it's not like it's Real Madrid who just won the Champions League and then you know, Chuameni is going to go there 100. I guess even even they didn't have enough pull to to get Mbappe because you know they couldn't offer him literally the director of football position like PSG did. But they could. <laughs> Florentino Perez just wouldn't give it up. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Well. That's not surprising, is it? Tell Mbappe, hey, if you come to Madrid, you can be the head of the Super League that we're going to still try to form. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, great, great signing for Barcelona. Really tough for Chelsea, and, and they need someone, probably another center back, which is why they're going after Koundé to accompany um, Koulibaly, who they just signed, of course, because, you know, they lost Rudiger to Madrid and Christensen to Barca. Um, and, and so they, they need another center back. Seems like it might not be Koundé because everyone wants to go to Barca. Um, but yeah, another French center back on the move, actually, Justin, is Nordi Mukieli from RB Leipzig, who is going to PSG um, for what seems like a really small fee, 12 million euros, potential add-ons up to 16 and, and a contract until 2027. This seems like really, really good business from PSG, in my opinion. And, you know, they're a team who are not hesitant to splash the cash, setting world records all over the place and whatnot. But this is a really shrewd acquisition from them. It is, but the question, well, you brought it up when we first saw this signing is, is he going to play right back or is he going to play center back? He has to play center back, right? Because Hakimi is on the right. So I, I guess if he's being brought in for the center back, it's still a good acquisition, but I just maybe think of him more as a right back naturally. Yeah, well, I think Tilo Carrer might be on his way out if he's not already gone. I, I'm not sure. Somebody can let me know on that. But, um, you know, there's been rumors about Kimpembe and, and him being wanted. And so this is it's good. It's yeah, good think... depth in both positions, right? Like that's this seems like a utility signing where he, he might he'll probably end up playing both at some point in the season. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking on Kimpembe and relating back to Chelsea, I think he's the one that's going to go to Chelsea, but we'll see. Yeah, well, that would be an interesting signing. That would be an interesting signing. Either way, yeah, this seems like a, a good deal for Mukieli. Not a ton of money from PSG's perspective and, and a player who is still young um, and, and has a lot of upside and is versatile, which is you know something we've talked about this window where I think players who can do multiple things 
um, are, are becoming, you know, a, a, a desired item, if you will, just because with injuries and squad depth, like you need players who are versatile. Um, and, and we're seeing a bunch of them on the move this summer. And I think Mookie is another example of that. And then another center back, Justin, this one, not French, but as English as they come, Ben me, obviously uh, who has been at Burnley for, for, quite a few years at this point is moving to Brentford uh, on, on a two-year deal on a free. Um, yeah. Was at Burnley for over a decade, 11 years. That's incredible, but it's kind of crazy that uh, Burnley literally have no center backs now other than Vincent company, but I don't think he'll be playing, <laughs> but they lost Tarkovsky to Everton, of course. And then they just sold Nathan Collins to wolves last week. And now Ben me. So will be interesting to see who they bring in to replace. But what do you think of this from a Brentford perspective? From a Brentford perspective, I absolutely love it. Honestly, I think that it's a very good, astute signing. He is a, a stalwart at center back in the Premier League. He knows what he's doing. Uh, he's a Premier League level center back. And so when with Burnley relegated, you know, it's going to be weird seeing him in a different kit, honestly. But mm-hmm. Besides that, yeah, I think it's just I think it's just really good. He knows what he's doing, and Brentford need to solidify their defense a little bit, and that's how you're going to stay up in the Premier League. You got you got to be able to defend. Um, and, and yeah, Burnley. I mean, Burnley's uh, sorry, Brentford's recruiting in general is just top class, isn't it? Uh, in, in general, so I think this is just goes with the trend. Yeah, and then just quickly going back to company in Burnley, they lack a lot of leadership in this squad. Now, Ben Mee, club captain, right? So going to be really interesting to see who steps into that role, maybe like a Josh Brownhill or, or something of the sorts. But yeah, company definitely has a lot of work on his hands if he wants to get Burnley back up anytime soon. Yeah, the other piece is they have brought in um, some center backs. They're just not the same level, right? They brought in yeah. Luke McNally. So that, that'll be a starter. I think he, he's from Oxford in League One. <laughs> 2 million transfer fee. So for, for that type of fee in, in championship, he's, he's playing, right. He's yeah, a starter. Yeah. Um, and then the other piece is of course company, as you mentioned, he's not playing, but he does have that Manchester city connection. So he's brought in CJ Egan Riley uh, on a free, and he's also brought in Taylor Harwood Bellis on a loan. And those are Ooh, two. I didn't know that one. Yeah. Harwood yeah. Bellis. That's a good signing. Yeah. So those are two very good center backs out of the Manchester city Academy, uh, both young uh, 19 for CJ Egan Riley, 20 for Harwood Bellis. And so that's, those two are going to be um, in the squad for sure. And developing well under company. Uh, it's good for city. It's good for Burnley. So, yeah, I think that maybe they're going for a little bit of a younger approach, but yeah, maybe, maybe get another true center back in there as well. And then another English player on, on the move for a free is Jesse Lingard going to Forest. I don't know if you, did you see like their unveiling campaign on, on social medias and stuff? And he was literally wearing a kit that said Jay Ling's on the back instead yeah. of Lingard. And I was like, oh dear God, Forrest. But man, they are paying this dude handsomely. Obviously will immediately be one of the best players in their team, especially if he can, you know, garner anything close to the form that he had while on loan at West Ham. Uh, because he was just fantastic a couple seasons ago, but 200 K a week, Justin, that's a lot of money. But when you think about it, it's a one-year deal. So, you know, even if they do get relegated, it's not like they're going to be stuck with that wage in the championship or will immediately have to offload him. I guess it's a calculated risk is maybe what you'd call it, but do you think it's worth it? I think it's worth it. 
I think it makes sense for Forrest. I think obviously this is why Jesse Lingard was never going to come to the MLS because ain't nobody paying him 200k a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in pounds, by the way. So that's about 250. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Dollars. That's yeah, that's an so, insane amount. Compared, yeah. when you think about the fact that Jesse Lingard's making like, think about the 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 just exponential higher salary that Lingard has when you compare him to Gareth Bale and what those two have accomplished in their careers. <laughs> yeah and the quality of the player themselves yeah, well i mean that too obviously <laughs> yeah no absolutely but i think for Forrest, um I, I think it's a good signing because it's the type of player that can keep you up that can find those goals to to w- get the one point or the three points late on that really help in a relegation battle which is i mean every every club that's promoted is in a relegation battle whether they want to accept it or not so yeah, I think, and I think it's going to work out well. I think because he's going to be a focus, right? And we know, as you said, in at West Ham in 2021, he played 16 games, nine goals, four assists. So he is balling when he's the focus. But when he's in Manchester United, when he's not the focus, same amount of games last season, 16, two goals, right? So that's why I think this will work out not only for Forrest, but I think it will probably work out for Lingard. Maybe his stock goes up. And he can get uh, a bigger contract for the for you know maybe the last big contract of his career. Can we talk about just quickly how dumb United are for not selling him last year? What were they thinking? West Ham were offering thirty mil at your doorstep, and now you're letting him go for free to Forest. Like they're they, that's just such a horrible decision. And and also you know I I think this is a tougher move for Lingard. While although obviously he's lining his pockets, like I just think West Ham would be a better fit for him and and. He's going to be in a relegation scrap, you know, this time around rather than West Ham, who were pushing for Europe. But, you know, they have some decent attacking players. I, I really rate Brennan Johnson. I think he's a really quality player. And I think him and Lingard, uh, if they can link up well and get some chemistry going on there, that will be a huge key to how successful Forests are going forward. And speaking of West Ham, Justin, they made a big splash this week. Just getting here we go by Fabrizio this morning, actually. Gianluca Scamacca, the Italian six foot four striker from Sassuolo, scored 16 goals last year in Serie A, going to the Hammers for 36 million euros plus a potential 6 million in add-ons. And then uh, they do also have a 10% sell-on clause to Sassuolo in case West Ham decide to move him on later down the line. But, you know, a big, big signing for West Ham. I think one of the, high, you know, biggest money signings they've made in a long time. Yeah, and this is a big signing for West Ham. I think that this signing is with the idea of going and winning the Conference League, right? Because they do have Antonio. And while we know he has some injury concerns, he was fit last season uh, yeah. so, and, and played really, really well. So he's, it's hard to for me to think, you know, Skamaka is now the starter, even though this is a large transfer fee. Uh, but to me, Antonio is still the number one. And Skamaka is, you know, doing the work in the conference league to go win it, um, which I think is a great move. I mean, this guy could be starting for Arsenal if they would have gone gotten him instead of uh, Jesus, right? He, I mean, they were interested. So I think, yeah, it's it's a big pickup for West Ham. Uh, I just it's interesting to to me to spend that much money on somebody who I don't think is the, your number one striker. Yeah. I, it just makes me think, you know, might Moyes be changing their shape and, and try to play the two together. 
Um, that mm. would be really interesting to see. Like that's a, that's definitely a possibility, right? Um, and also, yeah. you know, Antonio did a lot more than than just play striker. Like early in his West Ham career, he played winger. He played wing back for a while. So you know, I think Antonio is versatile. You know, he hasn't been playing there for a while, so it might be a bit of a you transition. Think he could still do it. To get, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, still got the pace, right? So um, we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see what, what Moyes does with these two strikers and whether he has to pick one or the other uh, or use them both together. But I think, you know, the signing might say something about that. I wouldn't be shocked if we see West Ham rock up in a 3-5-2 on opening day or something. And then one other thing that this impacts, Justin, is that West Ham were going after Armando Brogia, um, you know, from Chelsea, obviously was on loan at Southampton. But now that uh. obviously isn't happening, right? So, you know, he might end up going to Everton, although the amount of money West Ham were, were throwing in, it doesn't, I don't think Everton have. So, you know, maybe he ends up being a backup striker option at Chelsea, um, because, you know, other than Havertz, what do they have now that Lukaku is back on loan at dinner, right? So that's just one other interesting thing to think about and, and another domino that, that falls with this Kamaka signing. And now, you know, what happens to Armando Broja? Absolutely. He, he honestly, when I saw him at preseason, he didn't look super happy. He just kind of looked like he was going through the paces. But, uh, but hey, I mean, if, if Everton can pull it off, that'd be good for them. I know that you'd be happy with that. I think that they should be going and getting Maxwell Cormier, but we'll see about that. And with that, Justin, we can discuss our moments of the week. Of course, one of our weekly segments. Um, and, and, you know, there was some fun stuff going on this week. Justin, what was yours? Mine was Anthony Jedi Robinson. And I say Jedi for a reason mm, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't unbelievable magic trick like stuff that should be on the stage in vegas in in <laughs> the training with his at fulham i i don't know how he did this i watched it back repeatedly over and over again i don't get it he told a story using an entire deck of cards in a specific order that the story would only make sense in it was truly unbelievable it, to the point that he has to put each card in the specific order that he wants I don't know how he did it. He's he's and like people were shuffling, of course, during the thing. So it's like I don't know how you control this. It didn't make any sense. If you want to see it, go on Fulham's go on Fulham's Instagram, Twitter, any of their social media. It's there. It. I don't know. I can't explain it to you, but it has to be my moment of the week because a player doing magic tricks like that. I mean, what what can't this guy do? He can play on a national team. He can play in the Premier League. He can do magic and he can play the piano. Like this dude's just the best. He's the most talented dude I've ever seen. He's incredible. Yeah, don't forget about the gainers that he does on field, right? And then tricks Tim Weah into thinking he's injured. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was terribly impressive. Uh, Justin, mine comes from just the hype around Barcelona signing, signing Robert Lewandowski because, you know, they don't really have many other players with the letter W in their team. And that ended up catching up with the Barcelona team store because they couldn't sell any more kits with Lewandowski on the back because they ran out of W's to, to print on the back, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Um, they were not prepared, apparently, for the rush. And I think it's so funny that... Barca fans are out there buying Lewandowski kits, despite the fact he hasn't been assigned a number yet. Um, and he wore number 12 in the preseason friendly against Real Madrid the other night. But, 
you know, it's not confirmed if that's his number on the, the website right now. They're selling Lewandowski kits with no number on the pack. Why would you buy that? I don't know. Just Barcelona fan things, I, I suppose. But I thought that was quite hilarious. And Justin, I'm excited to talk about our game of the week next week because it is the return of European club football non-friendlies, of course. Although you could say that the Community Shield is a bit of a glorified friendly, but it is, of course, City v. Liverpool fighting for quote-unquote silverware. Uh, And, you know, this is the game where when you watch it, that's how you truly know that the season is back. You're absolutely right. I don't see it as a friendly. I don't see it as a major trophy or anything like that, but... It's not a friendly because the t- the managers are going to put out top teams and they're going to play them the uh, their entire game. You know, they're going to go 90 minutes. They're not going to be subbing in uh, academy players in these things. That's not how it's treated. So by, by Pep or by Klopp. So if they don't treat it that way, I'm not going to treat it that way. Uh, but it is, you know, the fourth appearance in, in the Community Shield in the past five years for City. They're 3-0. and uh, there's the third appearance in four years for Liverpool. They're 0-2. Uh, they, both of those games, they've lost in penalties, though, going 1-1 into the penalties. One of those was against City in 2019. So for me, I have to say City are going to win. Not only am I a City fan, but the, all their past records show it. City are 3-0, Liverpool 0-2, City 1-0 against Liverpool. I go with City. They're going to get the win and win the Community Shield once again. What's your pick, Garrett? Yeah, I have to agree. Um, I I think Holland is going to start this game. We saw already that he's not going to have any trouble getting off the mark early and often. So, you know, I expect him to to get on the score sheet in this game. And I think City will be too much for Liverpool to handle, even though, you know, their preseason started horribly and they've kind of turned it around a bit. I just think City seem to be sharper side at the moment. I think they are the better side overall. So, Yep, I I see no reason not to pick them to win this as well. But of course, Justin will be doing a full breakdown of the match next week. Uh, And so really looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Love doing those breakdowns for our game of the week. And I will love it even more when it's my team. (laughs) lifting some silverware even and with that justin we can bring this episode to a close thank you all so much for listening be sure to follow us on instagram and twitter on instagram at upper 90 official and on twitter at u90 official where we post daily content uh snippets from these podcast episodes as well as polls and we do spaces on twitter and and a bunch of other fun stuff so be sure to go follow us over there we're really looking forward to the season starting we've got so much fun content coming up including justin our premier league predictions which we will be doing next week alongside obviously analyzing the community shield so really looking forward to doing that um and then we will be doing some fpl stuff this year so stay tuned for that as well uh we will see you all next week with yeah yeah lots of exciting stuff coming up right so yeah premier league predictions justin i'm beating you this year for the first time i i swear good luck with that good luck with that (laughs) thank you all for listening